0: back in 2009. It was a couple of weeks or a couple of months after I had arrived at the church. And we were having a church council meeting and talking about how our attendance on Sunday mornings was at such a level that we really didn't all fit in one service any longer. So we had to go to two services. And so there were some logistics that had to be figured out. And most of the plans were fairly easy to figure out. But the big topic of conversation I remember in that, in that conversation was whether the second service should be at 1030 or 1045. Now, you may be wondering, okay, why are you debating on 1030 or 1045? The crux of the matter revolved around the Green, Green Bay Packers. You may be wondering, okay, why is that? Well, let me explain a little bit. I grew up in Missouri, and so I didn't grow up around Packers mania, but I had recently moved to Wisconsin at that point, and I had heard from many people about how passionate Packers fans could be. And even in the context of that particular meeting, I was hearing some stories about how, you know, at least in the past, maybe still in the present, I wasn't quite sure, but at least at some point, there were some people here at Frieden's who, if the service was going a little bit close to kickoff and they were concerned about whether or not they were going to get home in time, they would actually get up before the service was over and leave so that they could get home in time for the kickoff. And if there were others who, while they were still in the service, they wouldn't leave early, but they would constantly be looking down at their watches, wanting to see what time it was, hoping the service would conclude soon. And as we were processing this, and I'm thinking about, okay, I'm here, I'm a new pastor here, I've only been here for a couple months, I want people's focus in the service to be on Jesus, not on the Packers. Yeah, football's great, but Jesus is better. And so, so I want people's focus to be on Jesus during the service. And again, as a new pastor, I really don't want to get in competition with the Packers. Because I know at least for some people, the new pastor is going to lose. And, and so I want people's focus to be on Jesus. So we decided at that point, let's have the service at 1030, not at 1045, so that people can get out in time for the kickoff. So that's, that's, that's what took place at that point. I share that illustration to show the power that sports have in our culture today as Americans. And I can resonate with that. I, I can become kind of obsessive about sports at times as well. I remember as a teenager, what it was like after a big playoff loss, there were a few times I actually literally shed tears because my team lost in the playoffs. Think of a couple of years ago, 2011, the St. Louis Cardinals, my hometown team, were in the World Series. It was a big game, big moment. The rest of my family was asleep, but I'm still awake. I'm standing just a couple feet from the TV, because that's what I do when a game gets really intense, and the Cardinals have this amazing play that turns around the whole World Series for them, and I go, yes, but I punch the ceiling in, my, in the process. I end up with bloody knuckles because of my celebration. I know what it's like to get obsessed and passionate about sports. Now, you may be thinking, okay, I can't really resonate with that. Sports, yeah, it's all right, but I don't really get all that excited about it, but when we really examine our lives, we all have things that we can get obsessed about. Perhaps it's work, wanting to climb that career ladder, wanting our business to be a success. Perhaps it's desiring popularity at school, and that is what is driving us, that we want to be popular with those around us. Perhaps it's a hobby that has simply captured a heart, and we love to devote time and attention to that hobby. Maybe it's, maybe it's not these types of things. Maybe you think, I don't, I'm not really obsessive about anything. I'm just kind of laid back and like to go with the flow. But there are also people who at times get obsessed with their own personal desires and their own personal leisure and pleasure and comfort to the degree that they are not willing to sacrifice for the benefit of others. They're only focused on what I can get out of things. So they become obsessed with themselves and their own desires. We live in a culture that is easily obsessed by many, many different things. But there's only one thing that is really, really worthy of our obsession, of our ultimate passion, and that's Jesus himself. A few years ago, uh, Stephen Curtis Chapman, a Christian musician, came out with a song called Magnificent Obsession. And it was a song that really resonated with my heart for many years. I don't think about it as much anymore. I've kind of moved on to other songs. But this song came back when we came to the passage we're looking at today. And I want to read to you the chorus of Magnificent Obsession by Stephen Curtis Chapman. In the song, he's talking specifically to Jesus. And he says, You are everything I want. Jesus, you are everything I need. I want you to be my one consuming passion. Everything my heart desires, Lord, I want it all to be for you. Be my magnificent obsession. And... This resonated with me because I love this, this heart cry to know Jesus. For him to be that one consuming desire, that one passion that trumps all others. And magnificent obsession. It is an obsession, but it's a magnificent obsession with Jesus because Jesus is the only one who is ultimately worthy of that level of devotion Today, we're coming to a passage in Scripture that talks about this, this level of passion and devotion to Jesus. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. We're in, in the Gospel Fluency series right now where we're talking about the Gospel, and this passage, honestly, is my favorite passage in all of Scripture. I was telling someone else this morning that. Um, that Approaching this passage this morning, I I had kind of the same feeling that I feel like for Christmas Eve service or an Easter service. Just a service that kind of gives me the jitters a little bit. I feel like it's um, more significant in a way than normal Sunday morning services. But that's how I feel about this passage. Uh, I love his passion for Jesus that comes through here, especially in the latter half of the passage. But we're in this series called Gospel Fluency. and I want to remind us of the essence of what the gospel is. And the gospel is essentially the, the reality that if our faith is in Christ, Jesus has redeemed us. And he is currently renewing us through the gospel and through his Holy Spirit. And ultimately, he will restore all things, not just humanity, but all of this fallen universe. That's the essence of the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel. And we're seeking to become fluent in the gospel. Fluent means that things just flow, that that, that it permeates our being. And Realistically, we are fluent in a wide variety of things. If we went around this room this morning, we could talk about being fluent about cars, where you can talk for hours endlessly about cars. You could talk about being fluent about the health profession, because perhaps that's what you do, and and you just know the human body inside and out. You You can talk fluently about health and medicine. Perhaps you can talk fluently about computers, or about video games, or about engineering, or about teaching, about children. We're all fluent in a variety of different things, and what we're seeking to do in this series is become passionate about being fluent in the gospel. So I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to dig into this passage today about being fluent in in this passion for Jesus. Lord Jesus, you are worthy of all praise, and we do confess that we easily allow ourselves to be diverted, our attention to be diverted in other directions that are, don't ultimately draw us to yourself, Lord. They may be nice directions that, that we like, that are comfortable, they are enjoyable, but, Lord, they won't satisfy. And I pray today as we look into Philippians 3 that, that, that your Holy Spirit will bring your word to life in our lives and help us to gain a fresh passion and even a magnificent obsession for Jesus, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. So I'm going to read just the first part of this passage, verses 1 through 6, to set the context of what's going on here. Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we, we Christians, Paul saying, who are the circumcision. We who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reasons for, to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. So this is the first part of the passage. The second part that really has captured my attention throughout my Christian life. But the first part really sets it all up and shows shows why Paul leads in the second part. And what Paul is saying here is that we should not put our confidence in our credentials in life. I mean, he starts out saying, you know what, I'm going to write some stuff to you. It's, for, it's to warn you. It's to protect you. It's to safeguard you. And what he's trying to safeguard us against is putting our sense of ultimate confidence in life in our credentials, uh, whether it's our, our accomplishments, our education, our skills, our talents. Paul's saying, don't put your confidence in those things. Then he points to some false teachers. These false teachers are called Judaizers. Now, you may think, What's a Judaizer? That's kind of a strange word. Well, a Judaizer is someone who is a Jew who who at least claims to be a Christian, but they are working to impose the Jewish law, the Jewish system of things on Christians, saying if you're really a Christian, if you really want to please God, you need to follow these Jewish laws. And most prominently, Judaizers were teaching you need to follow the laws of circumcision from the Old Testament and you need to follow the food laws about what's appropriate to eat and not to eat. So these Judaizers were apparently having some degree of influence there in the Philippian Church, and Paul's warning them, "Watch out for those Judaizers, because what they are teaching will not ultimately draw you closer to Christ. And he refers to them as saying, "Watch out for those dogs." Now, when we think of dogs, we oftentimes think, "Oh, dogs are kind of nice. I like dogs. I mean, I grew up with a couple of black labs, and I have very fond memories of them. I mean, currently where we live, we're practically surrounded by people who, who own dogs. And for our kids, that's a great thing. Our kids really enjoy the dogs uh, that are around us. heal, our daughter, literally squeals with joy every time she, sque- she sees a dog. Somehow over the years, dogs have, have obtained the title of being man's best friend. And so when we think of dogs, we think of, of these, nice, um, these nice creatures that, that we can cuddle with, that we can play with, that, that are our friends, that we grow attached to over time. But that's not the picture that the Philippian church would have had when Paul said to watch out for those dogs. It's a very derogatory term in that culture because in that culture, dogs were disgusting and they were scavengers. They were wild animals, they, they were dirty, they at times could be vicious and dangerous. If you've ever been to a third world country, you probably have a picture of what these types of dogs were like that the Philippian church would be familiar with. I remember when Shelley and I were in Ethiopia uh, with Micaias' adoption, seeing the dogs just roam free throughout the streets. They were wild dogs, they, they weren't pretty dogs, they weren't generally friendly dogs, I mean, they were just running free, scavenging through the garbage, uh, just doing whatever they wanted to do. I, Shelley and I can still remember laying in bed at night and hearing the dogs constantly outside, just wild dogs running around, yipping. And at times you could hear a lot of growling and fighting because the dogs evidently were getting in fights with each other or with something else. They're wild dogs. And Paul is saying here, watch out for those dogs. And, and in this context... There's even a deeper irony and a deeper meaning here because in the Jewish context, Jews typically in that culture refer to Gentiles, which are non-Jewish people, with the derogatory term dogs. They would say those people are they're dogs. They're not following the one true God. They're following their own gods, their own made-up system of worship that ultimately isn't worshiping the, worshiping the one true God. They're dogs. And what Paul is doing here is turning the tables and saying, you Judaizers... You are the ones who are the real dogs here. You are the ones who are perverting true worship. You are the ones who are not submitting to what God is doing in this world. You're making up your own system, false system of worship. Now, in our culture, we may think, no, Paul, it's not very nice to call someone a dog, especially uh, in that type of setting." But we need to recognize that our ears in the 21st century are very accustomed to this political correctness idea. Political correctness was not a big theme in the first century. In the first century, it, the way of the world was simply you don't pull any punches, you say things as they are, uh, you, you speak your mind, you do it in strong language. And so for the Philippians, for Paul, it was normal to use these types of terms. And Paul says, watch out for those dogs those men who do evil, those, these Judaizers are, are, are doing evil because they're really pulling people astray from God. They're turning people away from the truth of the gospel. He says, watch out for those mutilators of the flesh. What's that, what, the, what that's referring to is circumcision. See, these Judaizers were saying, you know what? You need to follow the Jewish laws of circumcision in order to please God. But Paul is saying, you know what? Circumcision now, now that Christ has come, it really has no way of drawing you closer to God. Basically all you're doing if you follow those ways is just mutilating the flesh if you're trying to, trying to earn favor in God's eyes by doing that type of thing. So Paul has some very strong words here, and we may wonder, Paul, why are you getting so worked up over this issue? Why are you so upset? Well, Paul is getting so worked up here Because in his mind, and I think he's completely accurate, the very essence of the gospel is at stake here. The Judaizers are threatening the core of the gospel. And this theme comes through in a number of Paul's letters to various churches. For instance, we see it very clearly back in Galatians. The whole book of Galatians is written to churches in this region called Galatia, and this region was permeated by Judaizers trying to pull these churches away from the gospel. Paul says in Galatians 1, beginning in verse 6, he says to them, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. I mean, talk about strong language there. If anyone's giving you any other gospel and any other teaching about Jesus and about God than the one that you have already received, let him be eternally condemned. I mean, that makes calling someone a dog kind of pale in comparison. But that shows the importance of keeping the true biblical gospel first and foremost. Now, Paul moves on this passage to talk about how um, gospel people, when you really have the gospel, then you are truly a part of God's people. Verse 3 says, For it is we, we Christians, who are the circumcision. Really, what that's referring to is basically we are the ones who are ultimately in God's team. We are the ones who have his favor through the gospel. It is we who worship by the Spirit of God, meaning the Spirit is working in this world, and we are the ones who are submitting to what the Holy Spirit is doing. It is we who glory in Christ Jesus. Now you think there are many different things that we can obsess about in this world, many different things that we can brag about and and boast in. But Paul is saying that as Christians, as gospel people, we're not called to brag on our accomplishments. We aren't called to brag on the Green Bay Packers. We aren't called to brag on all of these other things. Our ultimate boast, our ultimate bragging should be about Jesus. That we should brag and boast in Jesus' perfect life that he lived. That we should brag and boast about his death. That he died to pay the penalty that we deserve for our sins. That we should brag and boast because Jesus has defeated death and sin and he's been resurrected. That's what Paul's saying when he says we are the ones who glory in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. It means that we are not placing our confidence in the things that we can accomplish We aren't placing our confidence in our worldly successes, in our bank accounts, in our notoriety, in our number of Facebook friends. We aren't placing our confidence in those credentials. We are placing our confidence in Christ. But ironically, he turns this around here and and makes this really interesting statement that says, though I myself, if you're going to compare yourself with all these different things and and pile up the the various uh, credentials and use that as your basis of confidence, he says, well, I myself have reasons for such confidence. In fact, he says, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. And so really, he's, he's meeting the Judaizers right where they are, and he's saying, okay, if you guys want to stack up credentials and talk about spiritual accomplishments, if you want to compare these things and see who has more, I'm going to win hands down, Paul's saying. I mean, he's talking about his former way of life, his formerly misplaced confidence in his credentials. But he goes on to give a list of things that, to us, we may be like, okay, why is that so important? Why is it so important to be a Hebrew of Hebrews and to be circumcised on the eighth day and stuff like that? That doesn't mean a lot in our culture. But in Paul's Jewish culture, Paul, Paul was really on top of the world. I mean, he said... He was circumcised on the eighth day. That means that he was born into a family that rigorously followed the Jewish law. He was of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. The the tribe of Benjamin, I mean, there were 12 tribes in ancient Israel. The tribe of Benjamin was one of the most prestigious tribes for a number of reasons. But one of the reasons was because back when Israel split into the northern and the southern kingdom, the tribe of Benjamin was one of only two tribes— that remained faithful to King David and King David's lineage. And so the the tribe of Benjamin was a very prestigious and well-respected tribe. Paul's saying, I was a Benjamite Benjamite there. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Hebrew was the language that the Jewish people spoke. It was was how they described their culture. He's saying, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, that he was fully uh, brought up in the Hebrew way of life. He was educated as a Hebrew. He knew the Hebrew language. I mean, he was deeply steeped in Judaism and in Hebrew ways of life. He says, In regard to the law which the Judaizers hold so high, I was a Pharisee. The Pharisees are a group of Jewish leaders who are very highly regarded for their strict devotion to the Old Testament law, to the Jewish law. That they upheld it very passionately. They knew it very intimately. They were held to be very godly people in that society. And Paul says, I was one of those people. I was a Pharisee. And in that context, that was a good thing. As for zeal, Paul says, I was persecuting the church. He wasn't just passive in how he was living out his Jewish faith. He was passionate about Ju- Judaism. And, and when this, this Christian church came along, this was definitely before his conversion, obviously, when the Christian church came along and began to threaten uh, the Jewish leaders of that day, he, he went out and struck back. He began to persecute the church systematically, arresting Christians and even having Christians put to death. He was zealous for the faith. As for legalistic righteousness, Paul says, he was faultless. Now, Paul here was not saying that he was perfect, that he was absolutely sinless. Another way to translate legalistic righteousness is saying righteousness according to the law. You see, there's the Old Testament Jewish law. There was this whole system that had provisions for what to do if and when you do sin. It included the whole sacrificial system and such. Paul is saying, according to that that system of law of how you attain righteousness uh, through the law, Paul said, I upheld it all. I was peerless in that. I mean, I had an impeccable record. You couldn't hold anything against me. I was faultless in that. So Paul is saying here that you know what, if you really want to get into a debate about your credentials and about putting confidence in the credentials, I could win hands down that sort of debate. But Paul, a significant change has taken place in Paul's life. And it's a gospel-centered change. The gospel is soaked into his life. He has come to Christ. Back in Acts chapter 9, you can read about that. And a change has taken place. I want to get to verse 7 through 11 now, which this is literally my favorite passage of Scripture. The the rest of it so far has just set it all up. Paul says, Okay, I had all these things going for me, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider lost for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. his new obsession in life. I mean, he used to have a lot of great things going for him in the Jewish way of life. But then he met Jesus. And he has a new, magnificent obsession. Now, what Paul is doing here is basically kind of putting on the, the, the hat of an accountant. He's saying, okay, I have a ledger sheet here. A ledger sheet showing profit and loss in my life. Now, I had a lot of things that were on the prophet's side. Uh, if I were to, to count them all up, I mean, it'd be a lot of things. Okay, I'm a, I'm a true Hebrew. Um, I'm a Pharisee. I'm very zealous for my faith in Yahweh. Um, I, I, I was rising very quickly in the Jewish world. Paul says elsewhere that he was rising uh, well beyond his other peers in Judaism. I mean, he had a lot of things going for him. He was trained under Gamaliel, who was one of the primary, uh, foremost rabbis uh, and, and Jewish leaders in that time. I mean, he was, Paul was at the top of the heap for the Jews of his age. He had a lot of things going for him. But he said, whatever was to my prophet, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. He's transferring everything, that, all his credentials that were over in the prophet's side of this ledger sheet. He's now saying, you know what? Compared to knowing Christ, they're loss. They don't matter to me anymore in comparison to knowing Christ. I mean, picture this. I mean, completely non-spiritual illustration. But picture that, okay, you don't have much food in your house. You, aren't, you don't feel like making a meal. So okay, I'll just have a microwave meal, microwavable meal for supper tonight. So, so you're getting ready to eat your microwavable meal. And you know what? Microwavable meals, they've come a long way through the years. So they're, they're not that bad anymore. I mean, I eat them sometimes when my kids are eating all the leftovers. But you're getting ready to do that, and suddenly the phone rings, and it's one of your good friends. And your friend says, you know, we're, we're grilling some T-bones. You want to come over? I mean, okay, not really a comparison there, is there? Microwavable meal, All right. Nice, thick, juicy, beautifully barbecued T-bone steak—it trumps microwavable meal every time. Now, maybe you don't like T-bones, so insert your other favorite type of food in that equation. But it's a comparison that you know what—you had something that was decent, but compared to that decent thing, this other thing is so much better. And Paul's saying that is what Christ is. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake. I have lost all things. Paul goes on to say, I consider them rubbish. Now, rubbish is a word that we don't use much in our culture. I don't remember, I don't know. Have you all ever used the word rubbish? I mean, David's shaking his head. He probably used it just for fun somewhere. Um, He's shaking his head again. Um, I mean, we may use the term garbage. Rubbish isn't a word we use much. And actually, it's a pretty weak translation of the Greek word there. The word is more along the lines of dung or excrement. We don't really use those words much either. Poo. The actual Greek word there is even stronger than that. It's a four-letter word that I'm not even going to say here because if I did, I'd be getting a lot of emails saying you shouldn't have said that. But it's a very strong word, and Paul's saying that compared to knowing Christ, all these other things, even though they might be decent things in and of themselves, compared to Christ, these things or like that four-letter word is like, like poo. Uh, I mean, that's, that's the comparison. Those are decent, but Jesus is so much better. Magnificent obsession. And Paul goes on to just, he, he can't help but expanding on the greatness of knowing Christ. He wants to gain Christ. I mean, that's putting Christ over in that profit side of the ledger sheet. He, he says he, he, he longs to fully experience the, this righteousness that only comes through faith in Christ. Not by works. Not what the Judaizers were teaching, which perverted the gospel. He wants to fully experience the righteousness that comes from God through faith. He wants to know Christ better. Verse 10, he wants to fully experience the power of Christ's resurrection. Fully understand the depth of what Christ's resurrection means. And even when Paul suffers, he says he's excited about the fellowship of sharing in Christ's sufferings. I mean, this is something that's very paradoxical. But Paul is saying, you know what? Even when I struggle, even when I suffer, even that can help me grow closer to Christ as I depend on his grace. And, you know, Paul, he endured a lot of suffering for the name of Christ, a lot of beatings. And as he did that, it helped him identify with the physical excruciating pain that Christ felt when he was beaten and crucified. So even in Paul's sufferings, even that is a conduit for helping him know Christ better. Whatever it was to my prophet, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So we come back to this topic as we always do in the series to the topic of gospel fluency. Now we obviously saw earlier how... Paul is pushing back very hard against people who want to pervert the gospel, and that, that's the right thing to do. I mean, maybe we don't call them dogs, um, but, but we still need to make sure that we are holding firmly to the true gospel. But in terms of gospel fluency, one of the things this passage does, it makes the gospel very personal for us. And we may feel like, okay, Paul's kind of stepping on our toes here. Pastor Brandon's kind of stepping on our toes here because it's getting down to the core of our sense of being. The gospel here in this passage is getting down to the core of our sense of identity, our sense of success, our sense of meaning and purpose in life. But that's what the gospel's intended to do. It's not meant just to be intellectual head knowledge. That We can quote that quote I put up there earlier about the gospel being that Jesus has redeemed us and is renewing us and stuff like that. The gospel is meant to soak down to the very core of our being. And Paul shows here what it looks like when the gospel does become the most important thing in our lives. One of the things we see in this passage is is that the gospel changes the way that we view our credentials in life. We all have credentials that we may look to for a sense of worth, or a sense of purpose, or a sense of identity. I know for me, I, I've had that a lot of different times in my life. I, I've have n- never actually written this list, but I have this mental list that, especially in the past, but still at times, I have that come to my mind of uh, of school accomplishments, or of athletic accomplishments, or of awards I've received, or of even ministry things that I've done that have gone really well and. It's easy to want to build our sense of identity on those types of things, but Paul is saying, "You know what? Those things—they may still be decent things, but in comparison to knowing Christ, Christ is so much better." So we change our perspective on those credentials. Now, it doesn't mean that those other things are worthless. I mean, I think about this list that Paul had uh, in verses five through six. Um, I mean, his list of being a Pharisee and, and stuff like that is, is zeal. Those things in many ways carried over and continued to benefit his, his new Christian life. I mean, think about his, his deep knowledge of God's Word that he learned as a Pharisee. That deep knowledge of God's Word benefited him in, in huge ways as, as he came to understand the, the Messiah better. In huge ways as he taught in churches, as he wrote letters as he uh, discussed the gospel with Jews in various synagogues. That knowledge still came in handy, but he was no longer defined by the amount of knowledge he had. That wasn't his identity any longer. The zeal they he had, he certainly kept that zeal. It, it was focused in a different direction now. But he was still incredibly zealous, but now for the gospel. I mean, the training that he received uh, under Gamaliel and, and in other Jewish settings enabled him to learn to to reason very logically so that he could even um, share the gospel in a relevant way with professional philosophers in Athens. So so many of these credentials that he already had were still a part of who he was and were still beneficial, but they were redirected. Now, rather than being used for his own benefit, for his own pride, he was now using them uh, for the sake of the gospel, submitting them to the Lordship, of Christ. Now they were put in their proper place and it should be the same way for us that that we should that the gospel should ultimately be our identity rather than looking at those credentials as our identity in life. The gospel fluency also shows us that only Jesus can satisfy. Only Jesus can satisfy. That's why Paul began this passage in verse 1 saying, "Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord." Rejoicing in the Lord is the only source of true joy and true satisfaction. Everything else in this world will ultimately let us down. I mean, think about it. If you put your sense of, of satisfaction and joy and purpose in money or in possessions or in success in power, as you begin to accumulate it, you will gain a desire for more and more and more. You look over and over in our society, people can never get enough of that stuff. You put your sense of success and identity in beauty or in having a chiseled physique, or in athleticism, or in sexual appeal, you're going to find a time that you're going to turn 30 one day. That might be a wake-up call. Then you're going to turn 40, and then you're going to turn 50, and you're going to realize that your body over time is beginning to break down. As hard as you work, you don't have the same look or the same visual appeal that you once had. Those things don't satisfy. I think about what Pete Briscoe shared in the video about being the best. There's something, that the pursuit of being the best or the pursuit of goals is oftentimes very, uh, very fun and encouraging. And, and I mean, the anticipation of those goals, it's intoxicating at times. And when you actually achieve your goals or achieve being the best for a moment, it can be such a joyous feeling, but then tomorrow comes and you have to go out and reprove yourself again. You have to up the ante and get more and more and more. There's nothing in this world that can satisfy us apart from Jesus Christ. I mean, it's, it's all these other things. They're basically like fool's gold. That on the surface, they look nice. But if you go and take fool's gold in and try to trade it in, cash it in for money, you're going to find out, you know what? It's pretty much worthless. It looks nice, but it can't satisfy. It doesn't carry ultimate worth because only Jesus does. And finally, gospel fluency convinces us that the best part of the gospel is knowing Jesus. The best part of the gospel is not simply going to heaven and being reunited with loved ones who also knew Christ. The best part of the gospel is not just having peace or joy or satisfaction. The best part of the gospel is knowing Jesus Christ. Paul says, Whatever was to my profit I now consider lost for the sake of Christ. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Knowing Jesus is the best, most important thing of all. Now, in terms of how we grow in this view of Jesus, of treasuring Jesus in this way, we have to address what could be called our affections. Affections is kind of this old school word that simply talks about those things that our heart is drawn to. Jesus himself said that wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So we need to address where is our heart And sometimes um, we need to, as we look at where our heart is being drawn, we may need to say, you know what, I need to let go of that thing a little bit because it's competing too strongly for my affections for Jesus. I'm that way with fantasy football. Um, I played fantasy football for the first time back when I was in seminary. It was not just, uh, it was an addiction. It was an obsession for me. I wanted to be the best. I wasn't, but... I still tried, and it was amazing how many hours I poured in to studying uh, what players I should pick up off the waiver wire, who I should play that particular week, how the other teams in the league were doing. It consumed so much time and so much emotional energy. I have not played it since. I still get invitations pretty much every year. It's still tempting for me to want to play. I'm hoping that someday I can still play again, but then I can do it out of Simple enjoyment, without being possessed by it, because that's what an obsession does—it possesses us. And so, for me, I've had to make that intentional choice. So you know what? Fancy football can be just fine for other people, but for me, I know I'm going to get obsessed in an unhealthy way that's going to pull me away from Christ, uh, pull me, uh, divert my affections from things that are more important. And so, I just need to let go of that thing. Now. There are some things in life we need to do that with. Other things we just need to say, I need to reprioritize that a little bit, refocus how I view that thing. And ultimately, we need to focus on those things that increase our affections for Christ. I mean, think about it. What activities increase your passion for Christ? What activities help you treasure Christ more? I mean, for me, it's things like writing out my prayers in a prayer journal is a daily thing that helps me to, to treasure Christ more because it keeps me in constant conversation with them. There are certain passages of Scripture, like Philippians 3, that helps me when I read it to treasure Christ more. There are certain books. I love to read books. A lot of books I read are either for enjoyment or for education, but there are some books by some Christian authors that don't just educate me. They actually lead me to worship, where, where it just helps me fall more in love with Jesus and get more excited about him. Books by people like John Piper or Tim Keller or A.W. Tozer. And and so by reading those books, it increases my affections for Jesus. What is it for you? I think it's important that we all identify those things that help us to treasure Jesus more and to prioritize those types of activities in our life. John Piper, uh, one of the authors I just referred to, said that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That our satisfaction in Jesus, our our passion to know Jesus better, is where God is most glorified in us. It's a really cool thing. I think back to a number of conversations I've had in in recent months with people here at Freedons, and it's so encouraging to see just this church family and individuals in this church family growing in their passion for Christ and for making Christ known. And my prayer is that we will be growing in that more and more and more. And ultimately that we all will be able to say with integrity, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are a source of ultimate joy, ultimate satisfaction, and even righteousness, Lord, because there's nothing that we could do on our own to earn your favor, to earn salvation, but you have accomplished it for us. All we have to do is come to you and surrender by faith. Lord, we look at the world around us and we see so many things that that are hard or that let us down. We look at the government and you know what? It's easy to put our hopes in what the government's doing to let our emotions rise and fall with the government. But Lord, we recognize that that's not our ultimate source of hope. We do pray for our United States government that the leaders will look not only to their own interests but also to the interests of others and that they will honor you in their attitudes and their actions and their words and and in their decisions. Lord, we think about the realities of life and death. We lift up Maxine Schwinn and Ray and their whole family as they grieve the loss of Maxine's mother this last week. God, we pray for your comfort in their lives. Thank you, Lord, for the hope that you give us in Christ. Thank you that when we are in heaven, that we are ultimately with him, never to be separated, Lord, face to face. Lord, we pray that we will give ourselves fully to you out of worship, out of love, out of praise, Lord. May you be glorified in us, in Jesus' name, amen.